Real variety for your work day. This is season three of the Fat Doctor podcast and I'm your host, Dr. Asha Lamy. We're going to be talking all things related to weight stigma, fat phobia and fat activism over the next few weeks and months. I'll be joined by a host of regular guests as well as some experts across the fat activism sphere. So all you need to do now is sit down, relax and listen in. Hello and welcome back. I know... I've had a couple of weeks break and I apologise to anyone who was expecting a podcast episode in the last two weeks. I know I said I was going to drop one every Wednesday, but I think I need to change that to occasional Wednesdays because, quite frankly, um, I don't always have time to record these and uh, or edit these. And sometimes I can't think of anything clever to say, which, you know, I'm learning. I don't always have to be able to do that folks sometimes I have nothing clever to say and if I don't have anything clever to say I've learned to just keep my mouth shut so I was very much hoping to have um, my best friend on today's podcast but I messed up it was not her fault it was my fault uh, at recording times and so I think I'll record that next week or I'll release that next week Um, and you just got me today discussing quite frankly I have no idea what I'm going to discuss today I haven't done any research um a couple of things are happening though and I I think really what I want to talk about today is Wegovy um for those who don't know what it is it is a weight loss drug it is called semaglutide and it is a drug that is being pushed into the general public narrative i can't think of another way to put it it is on social media it is in you know newspapers and people are writing articles about it and everybody's talking about it everyone's talking about Wegovy, and now there's monjaro and um before it was saxenda but no one's using that anymore because it's a bit rubbish oh these drugs miracle cure but it's funny all of these things that we're reading about and talking about are very much based in fiction and not based in fact. Now, the trials looking at semaglutide or Wegovy for weight loss came started around the late, you know, twenty teens and uh, were released in 2020, 2021, 21. Uh, some have just been released last year. And so it's all very new evidence, right? And I I just want to tell you a brief little history. Uh, I think semaglutide and and the other GLP-1 analogues have existed probably for around 20 years now in terms of when they were first worked on and discovered. The main distributor, the main drug manufacturer of these GLP-1 analogues is Novo Nordisk, a drug company uh, that comes out of Denmark, but also has a lot of um, work in the States as well. And then there's Eli Lilly, which you may well have heard of. Eli Lilly sort of has lots of drugs on offer. Novo Nordisk predominantly works on diabetes drugs. That's basically all they do. So 
when they discovered or you know were working on this drug for diabetes that's where it all started how to treat diabetes it does work in diabetes um i might even explain to you how it works later but it's a bit sciencey and a bit boring so you probably don't want to know anyway but anyway uh, they were using it for diabetes and it was doing its job but they noticed that everyone who took it lost a lot of weight now glp1 analogs act on the pancreas and they increase insulin production and they also act on the cells the cell walls and they increase insulin sensitivity in other words they decrease insulin resistance but they also have lots of other effects including the fact that they suppress appetite so the good people of novo nordisk realized hey we're onto something here this drug happens to you know make people lose their appetite and stop thinking about food and lose weight we should see whether or not we could market it not just for diabetes which is a relatively large population but not that large let's go and market it at fat people who represent you know a third of the population now in some countries i mean that's a huge market right and there aren't any decent weight loss drugs out there the only one that maybe works a little bit is allistat but no one can handle it most of the other drugs are highly dangerous and not appropriate I and mean, we've had scandals haven't we um in the past where drugs were you know accidentally killing people so i guess um they thought hey we're onto a winner here do you remember a drug called um sildenafil otherwise known as viagra did you know that it was a blood pressure medication that's how it started out life not a particularly good one by the way but then they noticed um you know a side effect and they thought hey there's no other drug out there that we can use to treat erectile dysfunction how about we just stop using it for blood pressure and use it for that instead and that's the story of viagra similar story i guess with wegovy so semaglutide has been used for diabetics for quite some time and it's used in doses of up to 1 mg uh, in an injection form subcutaneous injection so just underneath the skin once a week formula and what they've realized is in order for it to be effective at weight loss and we'll talk about how effective it is in a minute um you needed to up the dose 2.4 mg for any weight loss success they tried 1.7 in in one of the trials but it wasn't as good it was fine if you can't manage 2.4 but better to go with with um 2.4 if you can so here's this new drug that we have to give it you know almost 2.5 times the dose uh to help people non-diabetics to lose weight and also diabetics but the study there wasn't as convincing and around that time and i'm not saying that one has anything to do with the other but around that time novo nordisk and eli lilly but mainly novo nordisk decided to spend exorbitant amounts of money on wining and dining doctors making all of these conferences creating or supporting or funding all of these new organizations one of them is called the obesity action coalition the other one is the obesity federation federation no less there are so many more there's obesity uk there's obesity.org like you name it there's all these charities out there i'm trying to find out what these charities do i can't quite understand especially since novo nordisk is giving some of them over half a million dollars every year like they seem to do a bit of advocating maybe like going to conferences and stuff but you know they're not physically helping people from what i can tell but all these organizations exist 
All of them are being funded by Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. And all of a sudden, the term obesity, which we've been using for a very long time, and I'm not saying that Novo invented it, by the way, but it really did become a huge target um, for the media, for politicians, for anyone, really. If you wanted a, a soundbite to talk about, talk about obesity. Talk, you know, and and you know, engage with the Obesity Action Coalition because on the Obesity Federation because they sound really cool. One of them reminds me of Star Trek because you know I'm a big Trekkie. So anything with the term Federation in it has me excited. I guess they thought that was um, I don't know what they thought they were going to do with that, but they did spend a lot of money since I would say the last fifteen years, definitely. And over that period of time, we have noticed more and more and more um, guidelines being produced about the treatment of quote unquote obesity. And what's really interesting is that nowadays the narrative is, hey, look, losing weight is not as simple as diet and exercise. <gasps> Shocker. That that really is. I don't know about you, but I, I, I can't quite believe that. And so... That's not what it is, folks. It's way more than that. You see, obesity is a chronic disease. It's nobody's fault. It's not blaming people. No, it's a chronic disease that we need to treat. And how do we treat chronic diseases, peeps? We treat chronic diseases with drugs. And it just so happens that Novo Nordisk are bringing out a drug that treats fatness. So that's lucky. And we began to talk about this chronic disease that, you know, until recently, we didn't think of it that way. Obesity, as I'm sure you've heard me say before, is a terrible term, which I hate using, but I use all the time because doctors use it all the time and I'm a doctor. And it's this terrible word that basically means to eat so much that you become fat, which we've just said, everyone agrees is no longer the case. Um, so it doesn't even make sense anymore. Now, for anything to be a disease, right, to, 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 to qualify as a disease. It has to have a presentation. So it features um, signs, symptoms, that kind of thing. And you have to be able to um, kind of quantify it. So blood pressure is blood pressure, right? But high blood pressure um, or hypertension stage one is 135 over 85 or 140 over 90, depending on which guidelines you listen to. Um, and uh, diabetes, right? It's just blood sugar. Hyperglycemia, it's just blood sugar. But hyperglycemia with an A1C of over 6.5, that's diabetes. That's how we define it. So how do we define this quote-unquote chronic disease obesity? Well, we use the BMI. What's the BMI? Well, apart from being a piece of shit, the BMI is simply a measure of weight, right? Compared to height, but it, it's just a measure of weight. Is it accurate? at predicting whether or not people are sick. Absolutely not. We know this for a fact. In fact, BMI gets it wrong the vast majority of the time. One third of people with a BMI over 30 are cardiometabolically healthy. Also, one third of people with a BMI of 20 to 25 are cardiometabolically unhealthy. BMI does nothing. It's, it's useless. So what we have here is a condition that doesn't have any symptoms or signs apart from, you know, looking fat. And the only way to define it or to diagnose it, I guess, is to use a score that doesn't work. That's it. That's how we're defining this disease. So it's not a disease, but they like it to be considered a disease because if you can consider it disease, then you can use a drug to treat it. 
And what we're beginning to see nowadays is this quote unquote chronic disease obesity is basically sort of describes anyone with metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, which, by the way, is purely genetic. Um, uh, Anyone who um, has PCOS or um, any other condition that causes people to be insulin resistant, fatty liver disease, that's another example. Okay. um, also my favourite pre-diabetes let's get sidetracked for a moment do you know the history of pre-diabetes i don't know if you know this in 2001 the american diabetic association decided that they wanted a better word for the term impaired glucose tolerance now impaired glucose tolerance is basically you fast and then you have 75 grams of sugar usually in a drink like a you know a sweet drink and then two hours later they test your blood and to see what your blood sugar is like and it should return to normal within two hours and if it doesn't that's a sign that your body is not so good at um, getting rid of the uh, the the sugar the glucose in the blood so impaired glucose tolerance most people don't know what that means. It uses fancy words. And the American Diabetes Association were very concerned, very concerned, because people aren't taking this condition seriously. And they were absolutely adamant that anyone that had this condition was at a much higher risk of developing diabetes. And if they could prevent it, if they could reverse it, I should say, then they would reduce the rate um, rate of diabetes and they would reduce the risk of complications from diabetes, which is the most important part. They were convinced, 2001. A chap, I think his name is Dr. Khan, came up with pre-diabetes, the term, which sounds way better than impaired glucose tolerance. Even I will admit that. In 2018, they did a Cochrane review, one of the best systematic reviews out there. And they found and concluded that without a shadow of a doubt, There is no evidence that people who have impaired glucose tolerance are going to develop diabetes. 11 years after their diagnosis, they can still revert back to normal without developing diabetes. Yes, people with impaired glucose tolerance may go on to develop diabetes, but plenty of people who don't have impaired glucose tolerance develop diabetes. And plenty of people that do have impaired glucose tolerance don't develop diabetes. In fact, they said, looking at all the evidence, there is nothing, nothing to suggest that we should be testing for this, treating this, or spending money on managing this. Um, They don't even like the term. The chap who actually originally came up with the term, Dr. Khan, I think, gosh, I hope that's his name. He is quoted in an article um, a couple of years ago saying that he massively regrets coining the term pre-diabetes. In fact, he says that it's one of the worst things he's ever done. And if it's him now, he advises, if you've got a patient that has quote unquote pre-diabetes, all you need to do is repeat their blood test in three years time. And why is that? Because we as doctors know that sometimes tests come back a little bit positive, not high enough for us to be worried, but not normal. And what we've learned is to just leave the person alone and see whether their body figures it out on their own. Because there's no way to reverse it. There's no way to prevent it from happening. If it's going to go in the direction of of diabetes, it's going to go that way, whether you intervene or not. And that's what the Cochrane Review showed. So that's a little sidetrack, a little little, um, tangent that we went on. But it's important because pre-diabetes is one of the things that we associate this quote-unquote um, disease of obesity with you know it's it's all meshed together it's like oh you know a fat person they've probably got fatty liver and they've probably got pre-diabetes and they're just gonna die at any moment which is all complete utter trash 
but that's what we've been led to believe. Um, you might be interested to know that the one of the biggest sponsors of the American Diabetes Association is, that's right, folks, you guessed it, Novo Nordisk. Anyway, so where were we? Here's Novo. They've got this drug. They're treating diabetes. They notice that it causes weight loss. They start spending all this money on doctors and conferences and PR and, you know, I mean, we're talking billions. I'm literally talking about billions here. I'm not talking about all... Um, millions I'm talking more than that spending a ton of money in research and then um sort of go we get to about the mid 2010s about 2015 16 maybe a bit 17 they start thinking let's do some trials now let's trial semaglutide our miracle wonder drug on non-diabetic patients and see whether we can get them to lose weight so they create the step trials which stands for and I'm now doing it off the top of my head semaglutide treatment in people who are fat that's not what it stands for but i couldn't remember what it was so step trials and step one <laughs> step one was a um a study on a very large group almost two thousand people and it was a randomized controlled trial and basically you either got the drug or you got the placebo in addition to a 500 calorie deficit and 150 minutes of exercise per week and monthly behavioural intervention as well. So not just the drug, all of those things. And what did they find? In the first year, people lost a ton of weight. Actually, in the first six months, even as they were like stabilising the dose, so even as they were increasing the dose, you start off at 0.25 and you keep going up until you get to 2.4. Even in that initial period, people start dropping weight. It was amazing. It was so sudden and so dramatic. People are losing like up to 17% of their body weight. Phenomenal amounts of weight. Miracle drug. And then what happens? Well, after about six months, it kind of plateaus. And then just around the one year mark, starts to go up. But then they stop the trial. <laughs> stop immediately. Well, they'd already planned to stop it. And um, that's because, you know, every time someone goes on a diet, they lose a ton of weight in the six months, or maybe there's a ton, maybe it's a little bit, or maybe it's a lot, depends on the kind of diet they go, a crash diet, are you starving yourself 800 calories a, a, a day or anything ridiculous like that, or you've just gone for like a 200 calorie deficit, of course that will affect how much you lose, but the most dramatic form of weight loss is in the first six months, and then you plateau, almost always, and then you start to regain in a year, and then you continue to regain, and what the studies show is up to sort of five years later, you're going to find that you have regained all the weight, in like up to 98% of people, the best study out there shows that a, um, a maximum of 20% of people were able to keep the weight off after two years. That's the, after five years, sorry. And that's the best study out there. Um, some studies show only 2% of people were able to keep the weight off, 5% in other studies. So, you know, it's pretty unsustainable for most people. And then, of course, we know that um, up to two thirds actually end up heavier than when they first started. That's the other thing that we found. But People assumed that with Wegovy that wouldn't happen. No, kind of did. Well, the beginning bit did, and then they stopped it. That was step one. And using that step one trial, they were able to get the FDA to approve their drug. Do we know what the risk of their drugs it, drug is? No, because we only have one year's worth of data. Um, they excluded everyone that could be at risk of acute pancreatitis, so we're not sure about them. Um, and they also excluded large cohorts of people. The vast majority of people in this study were young, white and female. That's it. 
uh, I think in some of the step trials, up to 90% of people were female. But in step one, it was about 75% female, 75% white, something like that. Or maybe it was less females, but definitely 75% white. So that's not helpful because we've got no data for any other group. We certainly don't have any data for black or other racialized groups. Um, we don't have much data for men. Um, we don't have any data for transgender people because uh, we never, ever study transgender people. But anyway, um, here we go. We've got this step one trial. FDA goes, sure, we'll approve it. Um, really? Because what are the long term implications? You've literally been using this drug for a year. How could you possibly say it's safe? Yeah, the FDA approves it. And then in the UK, uh, there was draft guidance published. And I think that one came next, or it could have been the European Union that came next. Uh, the UK published draft guidance, but that hasn't been fully published yet. So it's not yet um, available in the UK. I believe Canada, Canada is waiting. I think Australia is waiting. And I'm not sure about the rest of the world, to be honest, because it's much harder to access the data from the rest of the world, you know, because we only care about privileged white countries. Anyway, sorry, moving on. Um, <clears throat> so now we have this drug that is available in the US and will be available elsewhere too, very shortly, based on one study. And there've been a few more since then. There was a study where people were put on um, Wegovy for two years, right? Just consistently for two years. Still the 500 calorie deficit, still the 150 minutes of exercise a week, still the behavioural intervention, but this time lift it for two years. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? After a year, people began gaining weight. Yeah, that's right. After a year, even if you stay on Wegovy, you will begin to gain weight. That was universal. Interesting, right? It didn't even slow down. It just started happening. And then they cut off after two years. And then they did a study where they basically gave everybody an initial dose of Wegovy. For the first 16 weeks, everyone did the initial dose of Wegovy, lost a ton of weight. And then half the group continued on Wegovy and the other half of the group got um, placebo. And guess what happened? The group that continued on Wegovy continued losing weight until around the six month mark, then began to slowly plateau. And then they finished it a year. So we don't know what happened beyond that. But what happened to the group that got the placebo? Of course, you guessed it. They gained the weight straight away. Then um, they did another study. Uh, I'm trying to think what else they did. There were, there were so many and I know them all off by heart now. Um, the, the one that I find most interesting is that the people from the step one trial, they then followed them up and they did it in this really what, exploratory way. We're not going to really measure anything. We're just going to explore what happens, which is just such shit, shit, shit science. But, you know, whatever. They can do whatever they want, can't they? And so they didn't really intervene. And they basically said, if you want to take a weight loss drug, you can. We're not going to intervene. So about 10% of the people did take a weight loss drug um, in the second year. So that's not particularly helpful. And they said, we're not going to intervene with anything else. If you want to keep trying to lose weight, we won't stop you. But we also won't force you to. So no more like diet, no more exercise, nothing. You do what you want to do and we'll just follow you up. And guess what happened? Um, yeah, you guessed it. Everyone started gaining weight. What was really interesting is they gained weight so rapidly that it has never been seen before in any other weight loss drug. The rate at which they regained. It was really quite shocking within a year. Um, that sudden, so that sudden weight loss followed by that sudden weight gain is problematic because um, we call that weight cycling. And that's putting your body through an incredible amount of stress. Your body is not is not designed to go through that. 
when I talk about fatness to people, I often say, listen, we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of years worth of evolution in which sometimes we would starve and food would be scarce. So our body has learned how to hold on to weight. That's what our body learned over over thousands of you know millennia worth of evolution. In the last 100 years, food is no longer scarce for quite a large proportion of people living in this world. Just in the last 100 years, our bodies have not caught up with that yet. They don't get it. They don't understand what's happening. They don't understand diets. They don't know who Kim Kardashian is. They're not interested in being a social media influencer. Our bodies don't get about how many steps they're supposed to be doing or, um, you know, which foods are clean and which foods are not clean. They don't get any of that. Our bodies just know that when we starve, they panic. And then when we start eating again, they're like, oh my gosh, quick, 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 gain as much weight as you can because this might happen again. And if you're a cereal dieter, it will happen again, especially if you're a fat person, because you're going to be told day after day after day, you need to lose weight for your health. So our bodies aren't prepared for this. They're just not, they're not designed for it. And it's very stressful and it's, it's causing harm uh, in many ways. And also in many ways that we don't understand yet, because guess what? There's not much evidence. There's not much in research into this particular phenomenon of weight loss followed by weight gain. Nobody wants to know because there's no money in that. Novo Nordisk is doing everything they can to prevent you from thinking about that, because then you might not want to take their drug. Oh. So there you have it. Does it work? Uh, yes, whilst you take it for a year and then it stops working. Um, what they've said is, and I love this, yeah, we know that when you stop it, you're going to regain weight, which means you have to be on it for life. Really? <laughs> Do you know how much this thing costs? It is ridiculously expensive. And to put it into perspective, there, in terms of diabetic drugs, and don't forget, the diabetic drug is only one milligram. The weight loss drug is 2.4, but just in terms of the diabetic drug, it is twice as expensive as the other really good quality diabetic drug that we use, which is expensive. It's about a hundred times as expensive as Losec. Maybe it's maybe it's like 70 times as expensive as um, a Losec, which is you know the drug that we use to treat um, acid reflux in the stomach. So you know it's ridiculously expensive. There isn't a drug out there that costs much more than than we give you, but you're gonna have to be on it for life. And what happens when your weight starts slowly creeping up? They haven't answered that question because they haven't actually bothered to study it beyond two years. Why? Because it hasn't existed as a weight loss drug. And we don't know what's gonna happen to these people. This is like real life guinea pigs, right? We are watching it in 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 real life time. Uh, what's gonna happen to these people 10 years from now? No idea, we'll find out, let's see, you know? We are literally living in the fuck around and find out version of medicine right now just have a go and see what happens because that's how important it is to be thin folks that is how important it is it doesn't matter this thing could cause cancer we don't know we haven't studied it doesn't matter this thing could literally be killing people it could be killing people doesn't matter because we're killing fat people and really is it that big a deal if we kill fat people especially because we're going to be plugging it in marginalized groups of people um you know because they are the fatter ones the <laughs> the guidelines in the uk right I, you, you, you can't make this stuff up. The guidelines in the UK say that Wegovy, Wegovy is only available for people with a body mass index of over 35, unless they have a body mass index of 30 and qualify because they meet certain criteria. That's what the guidelines say. And then they have the audacity to say, but if you're black or Asian or any other population where we see higher rates of quote unquote obesity related illnesses, 
you should you can be considered for the drug at a much lower body mass index. In other words, your body mass index could be as low as 27.5 and we'll still give you the drug. This drug hasn't been tested on black people. We don't have a clue what it's going to do to black people because we didn't even investigate them properly. And you're saying that we need to be giving this to more black people than we are to everyone else. It's just this is ridiculous. I, I, I you know, sometimes I, I, I shudder at the, at, the, at the world because I cannot get over the fact that we're allowed to get away with this. Just I, I can't understand how we are allowed to get away with this bullshit. This is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. This is what they have decided based on evidence. You know, they said that the evidence shows and, and, and they made it very clear. The evidence shows that if you take it for two years, which is the maximum you're allowed to take it in the UK, Take it for two years and then you stop. After three years, your weight will be exactly the same as anyone in the population who just used diet and exercise to manage their weight. And how, what is that exactly after five years? Well, I've just said 95% of people will regain any weight that they lost after five years. So basically, what you're saying is that after five years, whatever you took, if you took two years of this Weegavi drug, put your body through goodness knows what, because we don't know what the side effects and the long-term implications are, after three years, you're going to be back to normal. In fact, up to two-thirds of people will have gained weight more than they already weighed when they start taking it. Can you believe that? They're still funding it. They still think it's a good idea. How is it possible that that's a good idea? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Novo Nordisk bought that decision. Novo Nordisk funded the trials. Every single clinician that is involved in any of these guidelines is funded by Novo Nordisk, whether directly or indirectly. They involve all of these amazing coalitions and federations and organisations that are there to simply provide support to quote-unquote obese people. That's their purpose. So they invite them into the room. They get a voice. They get a mouthpiece. The rest of us don't. And what do they say? Oh, we think we think Wegovy is fantastic. Definitely use that. Who sponsors them? Oh, that's right. The makers of Wegovy. I did a little bit of research not that long ago into Purdue. I don't know if you've watched um, that amazing programme, Dope Sick. If you haven't, it's a great programme to watch because it says so much about pharmaceutical industry and how it impacts the medical industry. But here's a brief outline of what Purdue Pharma did. They had this drug oxycodone which is a bit of a shit drug by the way it doesn't do that much it's a it's an opioid just like every other opioid it wasn't even a great opioid and what they did is they added their kind of slow release formula to it and so it became it went from just being oxycodone which is like short acting to oxycodone slow release or oxycontin and uh, it wasn't even that great like it was just a pain reliever but what they managed to do was they managed to persuade the fda to approve them for use of this drug in moderate pain. Because you see, most opioids were reserved for the severe pain market, for essentially the, the malignant malignancy-related pain market. People who have cancer need to have pain relief. It was also used in a very small proportion of people who have chronic pain that isn't being managed with, um, with milder pain relievers. So that's a small proportion of society. The vast majority of the people who have pain, it's acute pain, um, maybe it's post-surgical, maybe it's post-injury. Um, and so that market was essentially like paracetamol, you know, and 
ibuprofen, non-steroidals, and maybe like a really mild opioid, like um, a, a mild dose of codeine, but never a really serious opioid because that was reserved for the patients with malignancy. But the FDA approved this drug to be used for moderate pain. Why is this important? Because over a period of time, Purdue, I think the word that was used to describe it was and it had an aggressive marketing strategy, aggressive marketing strategy. They spent so much money and so much time and so much effort marketing this drug. It wasn't a great drug, but they marketed it anyway. And because they've got an approval to use it in moderate pain, they started marketing it as just just a regular pain reliever. Anyone can have it. Oh, you've got a back pain? Sure, take this drug. It's absolutely fine. Slow release, so you're not going to get addicted to it. That's what they argued. And I think that was 96 they brought it out. Within a couple of years, it was clear that addiction was a problem. People were becoming addicted to this drug, left, right and centre. You took it for a few days, you tried to come off it, and a large percentage of people couldn't. Uh, and uh, also people who were taking it for more chronic pain after a few weeks, they realised that it was no longer working. They needed a higher dose and they needed a higher dose. What does Purdue do? Does Purdue back down? Does the FDA go, oops, we were wrong? No, no, no. Purdue goes in for a penny, in for a pound. You're not, you're not addicted to this drug. No, no, no. What you're experiencing is something called breakthrough pain, a term that they made up, a PR statement, if you will, breakthrough pain. Um, now, we've always known that people with chronic pain have days when the pain is worse and days when the pain is better. We know this, like this is standard stuff. And people who have cancer, uh, and especially with palliating, there will be times when they have really, really bad pain. And we have to provide short term um, sort of pain relief. And sometimes we have to alter their doses of their opioids in order for that pain to be managed. Of course, that's always happened. But the concept, the term breakthrough pain, was meant for people who had just like a back injury or a shoulder injury or, you know, were recovering from like surgery. These people should not be having breakthrough pain. Their pain should be increasing and decreasing over time as their wounds heal, as their injuries heal. It should be getting better and better. But no, no, no. This is quote unquote breakthrough pain. And then they invented the pain scale and the pain score and they spent millions and millions on conferences, on dinners, on um, drug reps that went around and targeted um, community um, physicians, so um, primary care practitioners, telling them all about the miracle wonders of their drugs, showing them presentations, studies, look at this amazing leaflet, doing what drug reps do. And so all of a sudden, doctors were prescribing this, like literally all the time. It was terrible stuff. And the addiction problem got worse and worse and worse. And all the while, Purdue became more and more aggressive with their marketing until a point in time when they were successfully sued because they were literally killing people, killing them. They were murdering people with this drug. Um, So that's Purdue. And I guess we cannot compare the two drugs because... Uh, this was an opioid which caused an opioid crisis which is still very much a problem in the US today. In fact it started with oxy now there's a lot of problem with fentanyl and other prescription drugs of abuse but it started with oxy and Purdue was very much responsible for the spread of um, prescription opioid abuse. It's not the same because this drug is not a drug of abuse. I guess you could make an argument that if people need to stay on it for the rest of their life, then 
there's a dependence, isn't there? Because if you stop it, you're going to get fat again. So you have to be on it. So that's a dependence. And if it stops working in the future, as we think it might do, you might need to have higher and higher doses. Again, that's a little bit scary, isn't it? But that only serves to benefit Novo Nordisk. Um, So it's not the same. But there are some similarities, like the PR and the aggressive marketing strategy. Apparently, um, from what I read, and this is a direct quote from a, a, a newspaper article, the chief marketing officer for Novo Nordisk assured their shareholders at the time when the FDA approved Wigovi, assured their shareholders that they would be pursuing an aggressive marketing strategy within the anti-obesity market. Now, no aggressive, the term aggressive. Uh, this was her words, apparently, what I'm quoting from an article. But also note the term anti-obesity market. They didn't say weight loss market or weight loss industry. They're talking about anti-obesity because you see it's not about weight loss anymore. It's about treating a chronic condition. And in the quote-unquote anti-obesity drug market, there are only two drug companies, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. That's it. They're the only two companies that make these drugs. And if you take a look at Novo Nordisk's most recent um, financial report, you will see that they have made record-breaking sales. You'll also have heard of the fact that semaglutide um, is no longer, you're no longer able to get it because they have manufacturing supplies, shockingly, as if they didn't expect that. And the, um, the problem is that diabetics who depend on it are not getting their drugs either. So it's all gone terribly awry, but it doesn't matter because Novo can afford to pay for good PR. And they have got great PR. People are talking about it all the time. Now along comes Eli Lilly and releases Manjaro. Uh, That's doing the the rounds at the moment. And I can't help but ask, what is going to happen to people down the line? What is going to actually happen? The American Academy of Pediatrics has already agreed. And again... They waited for the damn Wigovie study. They agreed to um, to recommend, based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever, for doctors to prescribe weight loss drugs to children as young as 12. There is no good evidence to support this. They have a 68-week trial in children, which actually came out. The Wigovie trial came out after the AAP produced their guidelines. It, the, the, the trial that they had was for Saxenda, and it wasn't even that impressive. They waited. They literally waited. Why would they do that? Why would a guidelines committee, they did this big research and, you know, when they looked at all the data and then they waited so that Novo Nordis could slip their trial in. They waited and gave them like an extension on their essay. That's exactly what they did. You got an extension and then they brought this Novo Nordis trial in this time, like I said, on Saxenda. And based on that one trial alone, oh my goodness, based on that one trial alone, they're recommending that we give this drug to children over the age of 12 and I can't help but wonder what the hell is going to happen to these poor kids do we really think that this drug is safe how can we know that this drug is safe it's just we haven't used it it's just terrible now I have some particular concerns based on the um the way that this drug works so I said I might get into a bit of a science and I will so the drug the GLP-1 GLP-1 is a hormone and this drug basically is like fake GLP-1. Like it's like a knockoff Versace bag, right? But it, it, you know, from the distance looks exactly the same. And so this GLP-1 analog um, semaglutide, what it does is it causes the pancreas to release 
more insulin. Now, people who are insulin resistant, in other words, um, people like me, fat people, people who are prone to diabetes, and generally you're insulin resistant because you have a family resistance, a family history of it. In other words, you've got diabetic parents or first degree relatives with diabetes, or you, um, you know, you have a condition that predisposes to it, like metabolic syndrome, like. Um, PCOS, like fatty liver, all of these things, they're all related to insulin resistance. But there are some people that just have it. What does insulin resistance mean? It just means that the cells in your body no longer respond to insulin. And insulin's job is to basically, it's like a key that unlocks a door. And then the door of the cell opens up and the sugar goes from the blood and into the cell. Um, the, cells, the cells we're talking about are like the muscle cells, um, the liver cells and the fat cells predominantly. So when it stops working, or when the body doesn't respond to it as well, when these cells basically are like, meh, we, we, we're not that keen, thanks, but we're just shut today, you know? Um, when that happens, you've got more sugar in the blood, the sugar floats around the butt, and eventually it gets turned into fat, so it causes weight gain. It also means you're not getting enough sugar into your cells, which means that you're much more tired. And um, that's how insulin resistance works. And of course, the pancreas, which... Is, is usually pretty good. Well, the job of the pancreas is to detect how much sugar in the blood is there in the first place. So the pancreas goes, uh-oh, something's all right. We need to make more insulin because there's too much sugar in the blood. Make more, make more, make more. And as the pancreas keeps making more and more and more insulin, what happens is it can't cope. It can't cope because the cells can't keep making insulin all the time. And eventually they sort of wear out. And to begin with, that damage to the to the pancreas, to the beta cells and pancreas, these pancreas cells, they they can handle it, right? Like a little bit of damage and then they repair themselves and that's fine. But over time, um, the damage becomes irreparable. And so we get what we call pancreatic exhaustion. The pancreas is not working as well. And so it's not producing as much insulin. And type 2 diabetes, you have a mixture of insulin resistance and and some insulin deficiency, not total insulin deficiency. In type 1 diabetes, your pancreas, the beta cells are kaput, nothing's working, it's not creating any insulin, that's the end of it. But with type 2, it's working, but not as well, because it's exhausted. We all know what it means to be exhausted, right? So, here's my concern. How do the GLP-1 analogs work? Well, they make you release more insulin. And if you're a diabetic, this is necessary because you're not making enough. So we want to increase you, your insulin. They also supposedly improve insulin resistance. So they, they make cells more sensitive to insulin. So that's good, right? I'm not sure how that works, but that has been shown. But here's my concern. The people who are taking Wegovy are not diabetic for the most part, right? There will be some diabetics who go from one milligram which is their diabetic dose, to 2.4 milligrams, which is the weight loss dose. But diabetics only need to be on one milligram to control their diabetes. So the majority of people taking Wegovy are non-diabetics. Some of them are kids as young as 12. And my concern is, if you're increasing the insulin production in the pancreas by giving them this drug every single day, in high doses, to make them lose weight, are you not going to make their pancreas get exhausted earlier like we're assuming that the pancreas is just going to keep going go yeah let's make some more insulin woohoo 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 but isn't it like eventually like logically isn't there a chance that eventually the pancreas is going to get a bit exhausted and then we'll have an, a, a relative insulin deficiency people keep telling me no that's not possible it couldn't happen and i'm like cool cool why and they don't have an answer <laughs> 
they are like, well, you know, um, you know, that that's just not. Have you investigated? Have you checked it? Have you even remotely considered it in any of your literature? No. Has anybody mentioned this in any of the Wegovi trials? No. Apparently, I'm the only one that's concerned about this, but you guys agree with me, right? It's a bit worrying. Whew. Gosh, my blood pressure's going up. I worry about my blood pressure right now. It's not good. That's what happens every time I talk about Novo Nordisk. So let's summarise. We have a drug. I didn't know what I was going to talk about at the beginning of this podcast. Look at that. I don't even think I'm going to edit it. I'm just going to put this out there. You can hear my unfiltered rant with all the ums and ahs and oops and, you know, all the, just the whole of it. Just me unfiltered. Here we go. Um, I just, where to start? The ethics of all of this, you know, the aggressive marketing campaign, the the shift, the subtle shift from... Uh, uh, you guys are just fat and we're going to call you obese and really you need to go on a diet to obesity is a chronic disease that needs treating and we must stop stigmatising patients and we must care for them by giving them a drug for the rest of their life. Like the subtle shift, most of us didn't notice it. Some of us did and we've been warning about it but most people didn't notice it. And you know, I have I, I have only been in this industry and by industry, I mean the, the fat activism industry for a few years, around the same time as Wegovi has existed. And there are people who have been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, advocating and, and forcing people to listen and pay attention and warning people about pharmaceutical industries and how unethical they are. They are involved in all of the research. Their hands are, their grubby little paws are everywhere. In the research, in these so-called charities and organisations that get a seat at the table, in the guidelines, in the doctors, in the in patient advocates even, their grubby little mitts are everywhere. In 2021, there was this, um, you know, it was pandemic time. I don't know how they managed to get a conference together, but all these organisations, all of which were funded by Novo Nordis, got together to write a statement about how obesity was a chronic condition. And I won't read the statement because it's bloody offensive, but it's just all, it's got their fingerprints all over it. You know, how unethical is that? And you just have to look at their profits um, statement for the last six months to realise how Clever they are, to be fair to them. <laughs> Kudos to them. It's a great strategy until it all goes to hell. And that will be 10 years from now, probably. And by then, you know, it'll be like, oh, what a tragedy. What happened to the Sackler family after Purdue, you know, basically filed for bankruptcy? Well, their, comp- their company is destroyed, but they're not. They're still living the high life, mate. Um, I guess <sighs> these terribly unethical individuals are ruining real people's lives and they will harm the most vulnerable the most so if you are very fat um if you're black if you're poor if you're disabled trans or queer or you know you're the one that's getting targeted trust me these people are coming for you and you alone um and they know that you know many of you are going to pay out of pocket because you're going to pay privately because you can't afford it or you don't get it on the NHS or whatever. They know that you will do whatever it takes to get thin. Why? Because you're already living in a world where your body is hated. Like, even if you aren't fat, your body's already hated. If you add fat in there, like, your body is, like, 
despised. The fatter you are, the more despised you are. Some of you are so completely and utterly socially isolated, excluded from parts of society, which, by the way, is one of the worst things you can do to a person. Social isolation is actually one of the biggest contributors to poor health. It, 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 and, you know, it takes years off your life, but you're already socially isolated. So, of course, you're going to do whatever you can to get back some of that social currency. So you'll pay. You'll pay out of pocket. They know this. They've already seen it with bariatric surgery. All the people that are paying for private bariatric surgery, they are, you know, oftentimes the most marginalised people. They're... They know this and they don't care. And you know why? And they want this. Why? Because nobody cares about your lives. Nobody cares. They care about thin, white, cisgender, heterosexual people with money and influence. Those are the people we've always cared about. It. Just look at National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. All we've been talking about is thin, white, fragile, cisgender women and their anorexia. That is not a representation of eating disorders. That's all everyone cares about. Poor, thin, white girls that are starving themselves. They don't care about all of the other people. They don't care about the fat black women who are actually at one of the highest rates of eating disorders. Or the trans people, or the men. They don't care about any of that. They only care about this, this, the, the most elite within society. And it's going to be the same thing. When uh, poor, uh, rich, thin, white, cisgender people start suffering as a result of Wigovi, we're going to be talking about it. But that's a long way in the future. To begin with, just like with Purdue and the opioid crisis, it's going to be marginalised communities that are impacted. And we go and nobody Nordis know they can get away with this because nobody cares about these people. Nobody cares about these people's lives. Nobody cares about marginalised folks. Like, it doesn't matter. Their lives are disposable. They always have been. Actually, for some people, it's kind of a good thing. Like, oh, a few fat people died. Oh, well, you know? It's not the end of the world. It's all about resource management, apparently. So yeah, I'm being a bit cynical here, and I'm using you know these people in a in a in a um, <clears throat> in a you know in a in a in a in a way to prove my point. But I just get this feeling that this is all planned. This is all very much intentional. This is all very much deliberate, and we're going to see people really harmed in the long term by this drug and and I hope one day because this is going to be out there right like this podcast no one's listening to it at the moment but I hope one day um <laughs> we'll be able to play this podcast and I'll be able to say hi I told you so not that I want to be right because by the time we get to ha, I told you so it's too late um I'm gonna stop now I've ranted and raved enough and it's um quite late and I really want some dinner something delightfully fatty and sugary sounds like what I need right now I hope you're all well I hope this wasn't too triggering I hope I didn't cause any offense sometimes when I rant like I don't filter myself and I don't think very carefully about what I'm saying but I put it out there anyway and you know I'll be a bit like Novo Nordisk you know fuck around and find out let's just see what happens put it out there and if I get loads of complaints I'll take it down and edit it I hope you're all well I'll speak to you next week hopefully I will have recorded with Keisha and you get to enjoy listening to me and my bestie talking about, I don't know what we're going to talk about. I mean, I do have an idea, but it'll be awesome because you should be a fly on the wall, a fly on the wall in these conversations. They're absolutely epic. Um, see you next time. As for me, check out my website, www.fatdoctor.co.uk for more information about what I'm up to and what I have on offer. 
Folks, creating and maintaining a podcast requires long hours and lots of cash to burn. I love this podcast. I love pouring my heart and soul into everything that I do, but it isn't always easy. So if you'd like to support me and the work that I'm doing, I have a Patreon page. All the details are available on my website and in the show notes. Thank you for listening and I look forward to catching up with you next week.